Welcome to Alessia's Divine Comedy, a journey through Dante's masterpiece, a read-along podcast hosted by me, Alessia Cesana Harris. This is episode 16, Inferno, Canto Sedicesimo, The Second Day, Sunrise. Good afternoon. We are still in mid-twenties degrees weather and somehow people keep going on a run past my house and to me the prospect of doing that at any time other than sunset or even sunrise is less appealing than being on Dante's journey. And I'm not a morning person so that I would be willing to run at sunrise really speaks volumes. It is still around sunrise in our poem too. As the canti from 13 to 18 cover a really short period of time. The subject of today's canto is, once again, Florence. I wasn't exaggerating when I called this a revenge poem. Dante and Virgil have nearly arrived at the point where the river falls into the next circle, which is where they aim to pass, when the squad, after the one they just left, catches up with them. Among the damned are three illustrious Florentines who recognize Dante as a compatriot from the way he was dressed and called out to him. They call it their evil fatherland and so they seem to be kindred spirits even before we get to know who they are. The scene of them walking in a circle and keeping their eyes on Dante at the same time is rather comical. Despite a couple of verses that sound like they are so important they expected Dante to introduce himself first, instead of having Virgil play the master's ceremony, introducing them to him like the, the Bingleys and Mr. Darcy walking into the assembly rooms, one of the souls introduces the trio. The man speaking is Jacopo Rusticucci, a knight of Florence from the generation before Dante. Originally from the minor nobility, he was a Guelph, who acquired wealth and prestige as a politician and a diplomat when Florence controlled some of the other Tuscan cities. According to the Dictionary of Italian Biographies, there are records of his involvement in the local politics of various places up until 1266, but there is no confirmed date, uh, date of death. And it's likely he was just since 66 at a time, so it could have even meant some years of retirement in obscurity. We tend to think of people in the past all dying a lot younger than what we expect nowadays, but the upper classes had an average lifespan quite similar to ours once they survived into adulthood, unless of course they died of causes other than natural ones. It was not too unusual for healthy, wealthy people to hit the late 60s and 70s. Anyway, whenever he died, he blames his insufferable wife for the fact that he is found where he is. The man walking ahead of him was Guido Guerra, who was also Guelph and the nephew of a powerful noblewoman named Gualdrada. I might be mistaken, but this is, I believe, the first time we see a mention of a woman of status. She was also, according to Boccaccio's on famous women, a virtuous one. A marriage was arranged by Emperor Otto, who was impressed with her virtue after she refused him, or technically, she refused her father, saying to the Emperor that he could get her to kiss him, as well as her beauty and dignity. Anyway, Guido was the leader of a group of 400 Guelphs who were instrumental in ensuring Charles of Anjou 
victory in the Battle of Benevento in 1265 that led to rep him replacing Manfred as King of Sicily. It is only one of the many military achievements of this warlord and politician. He was an Earl of the Guidi family, with extensive territories across Tuscany and Romagna, with noble blood on both sides of his parentage. He had one wife, who may have been related to Innocent V, which would explain how he was so close to the man, and they had no children. He had a child with a mistress, though, crudely named the rude word for illegitimate, and he was able to leave him a castle when all of his possessions went on to his nephews after his death in 1272. The third man was Teghiaio Aldobrandi, whose voice should have been heeded in the world above. And I'm quoting verse 42. There is an ambiguity in the original text, though, that seems to me to suggest not only this was true of past events in his lifetime, but also a wisdom that could inform the politics of the present. He was also Guelph and died in 1262, sorry, after an illustrious political career. Boccaccio remembered him as having a big heart, wisdom and bravery. I'm paraphrasing. They were the figures discussed by Chaco when warning Dante to meet those he was asking after later on. And despite lengthy entries for all three of them in the Dictionary of Italian Biographies, there is absolutely no proof or rumour to justify where they are found. Are we missing something we should have picked on? However, there is no bizarre trying to make them blasphemers for a change. Dante tells them that their condition did not make him feel disdain, but pain, and goes on to tell his own story. He left a bitter life in search of salvation, or as he puts it, he left the goal to go for the sweet apples. And Rusticucci wishes him a long life and even longer fame after death. I guess that came to pass, as loads of us are talking about him on the internet in the year of our Lord 2020. For some reason that I can fathom, since he called Florence evil already, he asked Dante whether the city still has the virtues of courtesy and valour, or if they have abandoned them completely. He mentions a new arrival in the circle who keeps talking about Florence, and afflicted them with what he had to say. And so Dante gets his cue to go off on another rant about the people who kicked him out of the city he loves so much on pain of death upon his return. But he doesn't. He just screams. They take it as a confirmation of what they knew, and then ask Dante to talk about them when he goes back to the world above, and then also run away so fast that it looked like they had wings. Faster than you could say Amen. What an image. So, Virgil tells him it's time to move on, and they get so close to the river that they can't speak to each other over the noise it makes in the fall. I love waterfall, so I can't really fault Dante for spending six lines talking about the Cascata dell'Acqua Cheta in its famous literary roundabout way. I've never been there, but it's an absolutely stunning place in the Apennines, and now I'm full of wonderlust and over the lockdown already. Now, Dante the rope, which which he intended to try and capture the leopard in the forest. And the next few verses are a mixture of narrative of how they used it to get to the net circle and Dante's thoughts. 
Virgil gives him a piece of advice regarding the recounting of a truth that is so unbelievable it sounds false, in case you get unjustly accused of lying. Uh, we know that didn't stop the apostles from spreading the gospel, and of course, it didn't stop Dante from telling us about his journey. So it's no surprise it didn't stop him from telling him, uh, telling us about the next character who was about to show up. I just love how Dante has no false modesty, and he says outright how he wishes that his poem would be famous for long. Now, before we go, there are some interesting hypotheses about why Dante would have wrote. One is that he was a third order Franciscan, but it's a pretty wild one since there are no records of these. The other option, which would be familiar if you heard of the confraternic evangelic warfare, is that the rope signified his bastard with lust. While the confraternity did not exist formally until the 18th century, we know that people used the relic of the angelic doctor's own rope to pray for purity, and we are now 26 years after his death, so the practice was rather established. For the records, I'm not sponsored by the Dominicans. It's just that you can't have almost anything medieval without it being closely connected to the order and especially St. Thomas Aquinas. And on this note, I'll say goodbye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Alessia's Divine Comedy, A Journey Through Dante's Masterpiece. Thank you also to Alexander Nakarada for the music which is fun for 10 or ads if it was not meant as a Roman numeral, and is available in the public domain. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at alessia underscore chic or on my blog www.chicandcatholic.com.